0: Michelle, hey Sarah, welcome to episode thirty-three of Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast. We hope everybody um, enjoyed your week off, and at least we hope some of you had a chance to actually take a holiday.
1: You are on the road to recovery from your food coma? Okay.
0: <laughs> so, as you know, we start off every week with a, a bit of a news roundup. This week, I'm trying to bring some good news into our flow before we depress you utterly with our main conversations. Last week, I I learned that everybody's favorite, maybe not everybody's, but he should be after hearing this, everybody's favorite pop star, Justin Timberlake, is, uh, to quote the Business Week headline, bringing unions back. Um, Justin Timberlake's tour dancers have signed the first ever agreement to be members of a union. So while the dancers are on Justin Timberlake's upcoming 2020 Experience World Tour, they will be members of the union, their earnings will be counted towards eligibility for pensions and health benefits, and according to all of the Fun Press releases, the touring company gets something out of the deal too, improved budget flexibility through direct negotiations with performers. So what actually happens here is that this is the first agreement of its kind for dancers, but this has been, this kind of setup has been used to cover um, backup musicians in the past. And the fun part is that Justin Timberlake himself was apparently very adamant about getting this done. According to SAG-AFTRA president Ken Howard, Justin was very open to signing the agreement and personally making sure the deal got done. As a leading recording artist and actor, Justin's support for his fellow SAG-AFTRA members in unionizing his tour was a key element in, conclu- in concluding this agreement. I thank him for taking the lead.
1: So... Just to be clear, we're not huge Justin Timberlake fans or anything, but we do I think it's cool that uh, he is—he's—he's he's a union Shh. man, apparently.
0: I'm totally a Justin Timberlake right. fan. Anyway, so in addition to bringing sexy back, Justin Timberlake is also apparently bringing unions back, guys.
1: So if you if you do find yourself with some extra money to drop in an overpriced arena ticket this this summer, uh, please
0: please uh, at least one of Timberlake. them will yeah. be supporting union members, right? But um,
1: speaking of, uh, you know, uh, linking labor issues with pop cultural general interest topics, um, there's (laughs) on the other side of the Atlantic, uh, there is some controversy brewing about sex workers in France. Uh, There is a new prostitution uh, legislation that is being advanced in Parliament that would follow a a general trend, I think, that you've seen in in Scandinavia with uh, trying to regulate prostitution by... Imposing fines, uh, basically aimed at uh, contravention, otherwise known as just deterring sex workers. So the bill uh, that was proposed in the French Parliament would shift the sort of criminal liability away from prostitutes, supposedly, and towards the clients. So the idea under this uh, model, which is also known as the Swedish model, because um, the Swedes, apparently, um, in addition to making excellent furniture, are also great architects of anti-prostitution law. So uh, when they implemented this, uh, the idea, I guess, was to simultaneously decriminalize uh, the sex workers themselves and shift the onus onto the so-called uh, clients or johns whatever you want to call them sounds like an effort towards decriminalization but what in reality it actually does is it just you know further distorts a market that will inevitably rise for sex workers' services and tends to, uh, like most of these measures, tends to drive sex workers further underground, increase stigma, and just generally be unenforceable. So uh, France, um, you know, in all their wisdom, decided in a in a in a you know in a spasm of reactionary lawmaking to uh, adopt this for themselves, and so lawmakers. Um, have just recently voted to advance the bill, and it may very well pass. So in France, the thing with prostitution is it's uh, technically legal. um, Soliciting, pimping, and selling underage sex um, according to the BBC, are not. So uh, basically it's a juggernaut of um, odd laws that don't really work for sex workers or for society as a whole for that matter and are basically just a way for legislators to pretend that they're doing something about regulating moral behavior. Needless to say, sex workers advocates are angry about this law and they're actually asking for policies that not only fully decriminalize sex work but actually you know, link sex workers into networks of social insurance into uh, legitimate channels of work so that they do not have to find themselves in a situation in which they're exploited. Unfortunately, while that would be a win-win situation for everyone, um, there are certain uh, cultural hang-ups that people have uh, even about in France. prostitution, even in France. So, you know, uh, the Global Network of Sex Workers Projects, um, they have strongly opposed this. Uh, they believe it's ideologically driven. Um, they are also opposed to the Swedish model in general. But um, sadly, uh, in France and in other parts of Europe, I think Germany is also rolling back some of its sex worker uh, laws that, you know, once liberalized the profession, they are, you know, now moving in an increasingly reactionary direction. So that is bad for gender equality. That's bad for um, anyone who doesn't really like the government policing their bedroom behavior.
0: I'm really trying to bring the good news this week. So um, in follow-up news to a story we discussed way back on episode 6 of Belabored with journalist and friend of the podcast, Jake Blimgart. The workers at Fat Salmon Sushi in Philadelphia, who have been working with the Restaurant Opportunity Center, Philly, won a $40,000 settlement over their wage theft claims. And the thing that really caught my eye about this story in the first place is that this was not your sort of garden variety restaurant wage theft where the manager keeps some of your tips for miscellaneous reasons known only to the manager. No, at Fat Salmon, they were losing their money because of their scores on tests. So the servers were required to take menu tests, and based on the score that they got on these various tests, they were allowed to keep more and more of their tips, which of course are legally theirs entirely, and the manager has no right to. So of course, they were able to get their money back. And also we should note that this was a legal decision, but, or a legal settlement, because of a legal case, but This whole thing started because the workers decided to go on strike. So in something that we've seen and we've discussed sometimes on this podcast, um, the sort of worker center model of marrying legal action to workplace direct action has, in this case, paid off for some workers. What, What does a sushi menu test consist of? all sorts of complicated stuff. I was actually a sushi waitress once upon a time, and let me tell you, there is a lot to memorize, especially when your first language is not, in fact, Japanese, as mine is certainly not.
2: Yeah, no, there were, the there, were, there were
0: menu that. tests, mm-hmm. so it was like, you need to name what's on the menu. Um, I believe there was a beverage test as well, um, and the menu tests got more comprehensive. There were several different levels of this test. Again, it was um, episode six, and we'll put a link back up, but of course, you can always get our full archive at the Descent Magazine website. There's a link at the top of every episode.
1: Wow. Okay. <laughs> I did not know about the sushi show, But, I mean, yeah. I th- I'm sure there's an undercurrent of this uh, standardized testing craze in there as well. See, so it's all I... connected. <laughs> yeah. there's,
0: there's always a test for that, It's right? all connected,
1: people. It's all connected. So, uh, well, this is where we get depressing news, right? So, um, I think in Illinois, we have some uh, emerging Um, depressing news, Uh, there is a bill currently being debated as we speak right now that would basically cut back on the pensions of public workers through sort of a a death-by-a-thousand-cuts approach, which is something that you see fairly commonly um, in state houses across the country. But in order to do sort of an end run around their constitutional obligations to honor the contract of a pension, basically they're finding all sorts of legal shenanigans that they can do uh, to uh, cut back on pension benefits and, uh, well, they call them savings. What they actually mean is, you know, removing money from the pockets of public workers. Um, So in this case, um, the big hit would be to the annual cost-of-living adjustment, also known as COLA. Um, So basically, it would sort of uh, gradually chip away at the cost-of-living adjustment. It would freeze the COLA for five years for any current employee... And it would also threaten to raise the retirement age. So all these things combined would still not get rid of the pension shortfall, but it would allegedly help the state balance the books. What this essentially amounts to is responding to a temporary crisis in pension underfunding with, you know, essentially a, a more or less permanent Uh, set of cutbacks to pension benefits and um, moving the state in the direction away from uh, providing sort of lifelong security for its public workers. Um, And, um, you know, again and again in public sectors and state houses, in municipal governments across the country, um, you see the issue of austerity, the issue of, um, you know, lack of funding being used as kind of a cudgel to make these huge cuts in the welfare state that, you know, will not get repaired. I mean, these are These are um, products of an economic crisis, and they're essentially building in um, kind of a a permanent cut, I guess, to, uh, to the welfare state overall.
0: And it should be noted that I'm looking at Twitter because this vote is actually happening as we are recording this week, that while the Illinois General Assembly is voting on cutting pensions, they also just passed tax breaks for corporations that apparently include Office Depot. So, I mean, once again, that sort of just shows you what's actually going on here is, as always, as always, a question of priorities, right? And we've talked a lot going back to episode one of this show about a certain group of Illinois public workers, that would be the Chicago teachers, who have certainly been getting attacked from all sides under this. But in terms of, you know, pension security, which I should also note that, uh, The Illinois public workers who are fighting this have been hashtagging pension theft on Twitter because it really is related to wage theft, which we talk about all the time, right? Right. Your pension is a deferred proportion of your wages that is agreed to in advance when you take the job or are part of a union contract. That's why it's in this thing called the Constitution in Illinois. But, you know, speaking of constitutions and pensions, we also saw just today that the... Detroit bankruptcy will be going forward, and that means that Detroit's public workers also will be taking pension hits. Um, The judge who was ruling on the case that we discussed back in episode 16 of Belabored, aptly titled Who Bankrupted Detroit, did rule that the city was eligible for bankruptcy, the city's emergency manager was allowed to take them into bankruptcy, and that pensions, just like other city contracts, could be invalidated by the bankruptcy. So we have yet to see what's actually going to happen. AFSCME has already filed for um, an appeal. They were one of the unions that was involved in fighting the bankruptcy and fighting the pension cuts, because of course, they represent a whole lot of public sector workers in, in Detroit. And so yeah, we're seeing these attacks coming on all sides. And also, what uh, we should note that, you know, just today, another thing that was going around on Twitter was that the republicans and quite a few democrats want to cut social security in order to unsequester the military right so um office
1: depot u.s military industrial complex take your pick it's really all things that deserve money more than retired Retired people yeah right
0: right. and it's one of those moments where, again, it's priorities, right? It's also it's an politics. attack on the social contract.
1: Right. I mean, you see it, it whether it's through the courts, through a bankruptcy court, or um, through kind of legislative, um, you know, shadowy legislative tactics, um, you see governments consistently trying to undermine the social contract that they have established with their own employees and, and with the public in general. Um, uh, you know, part of corporate law is the sanctity of contracts, right? That is one thing that is inviolable in the world of corporations and yet, so many lawmakers don't seem to give a second thought to the idea of betraying uh, the contracts that they have established with uh, their workers, people who can afford these cutbacks the least.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's worth noting about this Detroit story is that the judge ruled that, you know, selling off city assets like the art at the Detroit Institute of the Arts was a temporary fix, as opposed to things like getting rid of workers' pensions, which, as Michelle already mentioned, is a much more permanent fix. Um we so we're choosing between you know selling valuable works of art that used to belong to the public trust and cutting back on workers pensions so it's yeah.
1: uh yeah yeah Take it's or it's pick. At,
0: pick or poison at every angle right we're seeing these things be cut and i mean something i wrote about a few weeks ago and that's worth bringing up in this context since we brought up social security cuts is that right now we could be legitimately making a very real case for the need to expand social security, make social security available to the kinds of public workers who don't get social security, P.S., which is why they need pensions, Um, increase benefits, which is something that some members of Congress are, in fact, calling for, and really creating a social safety net that would fix a lot of the problems that the economy as a whole has right now. But taking money away from people who retire is actually going to make the economy Worse, right? Detroit is suffering from a lot bigger problem than just worker pensions. And those workers are not going to be able to do much of anything to help Detroit's economy if they don't have any money to live on. Right. And you're
1: also going to, you know, deter people from actually wanting to join the civil service and become public workers if they realize yeah. they have no retirement security whatsoever. So, Yeah, well, right. But, but that's is, sort of the point. Yes, of course. But this is why I mean it's it's sort of a starve the beast approach, right? Which right. is a recurring theme that right. we it's, deal with here. But I mean the, the, the issue of just sort of starving um starving the beast of the welfare state is designed to to make government as dysfunctional and under resourced as possible in order to right. sort of prove the uh, supposed self fulfilling prophecy that government always fails no matter what it does, right? right. So Vicious cycle anyway. Oh, darn. We've started off on a good note, and here we are.
0: We've started off on a good note. Less
1: than 20 minutes, and we're already in clinical depression.
0: Anyway, we will certainly have much more on what happens to Illinois public workers, on what happens to Detroit as a whole. Um, If you have any particular questions about any of this that you'd like us to answer on a future episode, please do tweet at us at hashtag belabored. If you yourself Um, reside in any of these. If you yourself reside in any of these places and are a person who is going to get your pension cut, please get in touch. We would love to talk to you Mm -hmm. um and on that note michelle has an update on yet another public service under attack another
1: public service under attack announcement
0: the uh well this is actually kind of an
1: interesting segue because it You know, it, it it relates to both the public and private sector, which are two realms that are increasingly conflated these days. Um, you might have heard a lot, uh, you know, over the past few days about Amazon. Uh, you know, first being a powerhouse in the uh, Cyber Monday sort of you know um, holiday shopping rush, um, and recently they rolled out a big plan to uh, deliver your packages by drone, which of course is you know the modern convenience that all U.S. consumers have been waiting for, and. Um, um, in another sort of odd convergence between uh, the state and um, and the private sector, um, not on the military side, but we are having Amazon, we're seeing Amazon um, propose to uh, partner with the U.S. Postal Service to do Sunday delivery, and I guess the idea would be that uh, it would be, uh, uh, Amazon to the rescue in bailing out the U.S. Postal Service, which is in dire financial straits. First, the know. Washington
0: Post and then the U.S. Postal Service.
1: Yes, yes. So they're taking over your mailbox. Um, and uh, the idea here is to um, supposedly generate new revenue and stabilize the finances of the U.S. Postal Service by injecting Amazon's resources and allowing um, Sunday delivery, uh, thus expanding the U.S. Postal Service's, you know, sort of scope over the course of a week and uh, allowing Amazon to, uh, you know, deliver more packages. So right. it, it apparently is a win-win for everyone, except...
0: Public-private partnerships don't usually work out as well as they're right. well Well,
1: um, if, you know, you can certainly take Amazon's word for it. But um, I would suggest you actually look at uh, Nat Stein's analysis of the U.S. Postal Service's woes online in uh, Jacobin, which is uh, called Keeping Postage Public. And um, the idea here is uh, to sort of challenge the idea that you need a gigantic private company to bail out a cash-strapped federal agency. The U.S. Postal Service is actually probably, you know, one of the longest-standing institutions of federal government and has actually been a pretty progressive force, if you think about it, in terms of centralizing the civil service, providing an equitable, you know, relatively open a uh, system of public employment for people across the country. It has been driven largely by uh, employment of public sector workers of color, right? Uh, Many immigrants have worked for the U.S. Postal Service um, and has been sort of a stepping stone to the so-called middle class for many a blue-collar person of color, immigrant, and and other people um, who have, you know, turned to the Civil Service historically as um, a springboard of opportunity. So, um, you know, while the U.S. Postal Service has its problems, we all like to grow, grow about slow delivery, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. like to make fun of dogs attacking mailmen and other things like that. Um, it really isn't as old fashioned and outdated as we like to think. And uh, Nat Stein points out that uh, the, the crisis it's currently in is a lot like the pension crisis that many um, state workers are facing. In fact, it's related to the pension crisis. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, the USPS crisis uh, was basically a, a manufactured one um, because the so called Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act. That was pushed through by Republican-controlled Congress several years ago. Basically, mandated um, this sort of super funding, uh, prefunding of um, benefits for postal workers, which basically sort of front-loaded a lot of their um, you know benefit obligations for retirees. Um, that you know, sort of shifted the balance sheet and then put them um, in a situation that made them financially unsustainable. But in reality, this is um, an extraordinary mandate that no public or private entity has ever had to deal with. So, you know, thinking about, uh, we always like to think about, oh, corporate social responsibility and, oh, you know, uh, companies are so much better at handling their finances. Well, um, you're putting the U.S. Postal Service under this um, extraordinary amount of financial pressure for apparently no reason other than to prove that the U.S. Postal Service is bound to fail, right? So they're basically setting up the Postal Service for failure. Now, uh, you know, all of that is sort of coming to a head. Um, It's finally hitting a fan because the U.S. Postal Service is genuinely in a crisis, but there are solutions that you could see through restructuring the Postal Service through uh, you know, while staying within the public sector, you do not need to reach out to Amazon for a handout. Um, but you know, because of this manufactured crisis, they are so desperate, and Amazon is sort of lurking, lurking vulture-like in the distance, waiting to pounce. Right? Um, Amazon, the charter school of uh, the of right. postal services. In, indeed, and so it's, it is fitting. I mean, you know, I say vulture-like, but perhaps yeah. drone-like is, oh, more, uh, is more is a more apt analogy. Yeah. But uh, they have been hovering here um, again. It's the Starve the beast tactic, and the yeah. U.S. Postal Service is um, slowly sinking, and uh, Amazon is going to play the hero and swoop in. Wow. When in reality, yeah. this is all kind of a setup, guys. Yeah. Just
0: letting you know. Yeah. It's either way you have you either have you're required to superfund the pensions so that they collapse, or we're going to take away your pensions so that the collapse either way it's still an ideological move and i i this whole thing made me think because i was about to suggest as i always do that maybe our solution is we should nationalize amazon instead and yeah sure let's let's take amazon and and combine it with the postal service and we should take over all of it right and i i keep calling for national and then give all amazon workers maybe
1: the same pension benefits that u.s postal service (laughs) Um, right no
0: and it's it's you know there's but it made me think of um another solution that somebody else um who we have not had on the podcast yet although maybe we will have to um dave Dayan wrote a piece a little while ago about um this proposing that we bring back postal banking as a solution which would both be a public form of banking that would be accessible to people who are not do not have an easy chance or do not have easy access to banks now and also would be another source of funding for the Postal Service. Um, I'll link to that piece on the Dissent website. And
1: the Postal Service used to be where, I mean, people used to rely on money orders as Mm -hmm. a way of transferring um, capital, essentially. And that's actually something that Stein's piece uh, talks about as well. Um, Diversifying services, actually expanding the public sector, right? Rather than shrinking it and letting the private sector essentially sort of, um, you know, gobble it up, right? Right. what if we actually had an innovative expansion of the public sector? And again, uh, we're, we're sort of trained in our current political climate to think about the public sector as essentially moribund, old-fashioned, right. crotchety, unable to change, right? Um, but in reality, uh, you know, the Postal Service was way more progressive than a lot of other institutions, public or private, in, in, in the United States for, you know, a good part of its history. So, yeah. Um, yeah. and did you know that you can't even, I mean, th- doing basic things like no rising documents, voting in postal mm-hmm. services. Those are all services that the Postal Service could pr- provide if it were not um, essentially, you know, uh, constrained by the uh, right wing.
0: Yeah, and I've been, and this is an interesting opportunity for me to segue into the next topic we wanted to discuss, but um, postal workers have been fighting all sorts of attacks on their um, jobs for quite a while now, and I... Um, This past week, when I went out to cover Black Friday, I should point out that uh, one of the people who got arrested with the Walmart workers in Secaucus, New Jersey, was in fact a postal worker who was sitting right next to uh, Colby Harris. So while I was in New Jersey, of course, I got the chance to talk to Colby Harris, who is one of the earliest Walmart strikers who then got fired from his job at a Texas Walmart for taking part in three different strikes. So I got a chance to ask him why he was sitting down to get arrested that day. So here is Colby Harris.
3: Uh, I'm getting arrested because um, Walmart has continued to retaliate against the associates who've been speaking up. I was actually fired illegally September
0: 30th. I was fired September
3: 30th illegally um, for participating in concerted activities over the past year and a half. And that's why I'm here today is to call on Walmart to, first of all, reinstate those who were illegally fired and work with the associates to end poverty wages, give us consistency with scheduling and hours.
0: What made you come up to New Jersey?
3: Well, the reason why I came up to New Jersey is because um, we're actually having a rally here um, to... Um, Support other workers in the area who've been going through the same thing. There's actually workers at this store who would like to come out who are just too scared. So that's why some of us are here.
0: Yeah. You got fired. Yeah, I did. After your third strike.
3: Yeah, I got fired after okay. my third strike.
0: Yeah. And then, what was their excuse for it? What well, did they, they tell you when they actually pulled you in? And-
3: well, well, my, according to my exit papers, which, is, which was, which were given to me by Walmart, they yeah. told me that I was fired for absenteeism yeah. or job abandonment. In reality, I was fired for all the days while we're taking uh, legally protected strikes.
0: Had you taken any other days off other than when you were on strike?
3: I had not. So, I was, I was fired strictly for all the days that I participated in concerted activities.
0: Yeah. yeah. And did you? Did they give you a meeting, or did they just tell you you were fired when you went back to work?
3: Well, they pulled me into the office 10, 10 minutes before my shift ended and told me that I was being fired um, for job abandonment and for um,
0: tardies and absences. That's nice. So what do you want people to know about this action that's happening today?
3: Well, what I want people to know is that, first of all, we're not going to go anywhere until Walmart decides to stand up and work with their associates and that we're, we're not going to leave until they um, give us what we're asking for, which is what we deserve. Affordable wage, health care and benefits. Affordable benefits and health care, that is. How
0: do you feel about how the movement has changed since you got started?
3: I feel like it's gotten a lot stronger. A lot of workers have gotten over their fears and decided to join us. But the reality is that the retaliation is still there. So a lot of workers who would like to speak out still aren't. But through our consistency and us continuing to speak out, eventually those workers will get enough strength and courage to stand with us.
0: And so one of the things that I think was interesting about this Black Friday is last year, they sort of focused heavily on trying to get strikes happening, that they said there were 400 or so workers who went on strike last Black Friday. I didn't hear much about strikes this year. There were some strikes leading up to Black Friday, but there were not a whole lot of them on Black Friday. Instead, we saw a lot more of this kind of civil disobedience, so Colby um, and 12 other people, including two other fired Walmart workers, were sitting down in traffic blocking the street that was right in front of the Walmart in, in Secaucus. And I'm, I'm sort of interested, I don't know, I'd love to get your take, Michelle, on what you think of this shift in tactics.
1: Um, well, I guess I would just, I, I would wonder um, what the reason would be. Um, yeah. Is it simply that workers did not feel like going out on strike? Did they decide that maybe civil disobedience was a better tactic to take? Um, uh, you know, with issues like this, as long as you don't have, you know, a full union, um, as long as these are workers who are essentially, you know, in a minority, a very tiny minority, um, working primarily for visibility right now, yeah. I mean, it might make sense in yeah. some ways. Um, to stage a civil disobedience action where you create some sort of public disruption Mm -hmm. um, more so than than striking, which is essentially the removal of your labor from a workplace that, frankly, if you're the only one out of 300 workers on a floor striking, you're not going to have that much of an impact. It's a a bit like boycotting, right? You need a critical mass there. You need some sort of public messaging apparatus. Civil disobedience, I mean, if you're blocking traffic, no one can really ignore you, right?
0: Yeah, Yeah, I mean, as Colby said, right, that they, they were doing it because there are plenty of workers who are still facing retaliation, that they themselves had faced retaliation. The NLRB has said that they are facing retaliation, that they were sort of doing this as a next step up to sort of demonstrate the things you can do. It's sort of a demonstration of, of courage and of also just that, like, these consequences aren't actually the worst thing in the world, right? That you can get arrested and you can be out and, as Colby was, be on the Melissa Harris Perry show the next morning. Um, But that, you know, it's, it's a demonstration of both commitment to the cause and also of sort of escalation in tactics without, again, them being the end of the world that should hopefully say to somebody else, you know, hey, you know, if that guy got arrested in the street out in front of my Walmart, then at least I can, you know... Say that I'm a member of this organization. I can take that next step, right? But again, I mean, it's all about the end game, right? Yeah. Um,
1: you know, this is the, the point of a strike. Uh, in some ways, is yes to bring visibility to your cause, but right. often it is. I mean, a work stoppage is essentially to put the brakes on an industry to to uh, to make a point and actually to leverage your own labor. Um, yeah. These protesters right now. Are not in a position where they can effectively leverage their labor itself. Yeah. So they're leveraging their public influence, yeah. um, in a way that may be very empowering because um, growing your public uh, uh, image, growing your public influence, of course, is is something that is relatively limitless, right? Whereas, mm-hmm. you, if <laughs> you're a low wage worker, there's only so much you can do at, in a workforce of, you know, millions, right? So. Right. Um, um but uh, again you know what what is uh, how is walmart going to directly suffer from this right yeah. right now i mean if it turns out that they make the calculation that their image is worth more to them um, than to, you know, having it be tainted by these workers who are doing embarrassing things, yeah. um, then then very well may work in the workers' favor. Um, if, in the end, this gives them uh, another excuse for Walmart PR flax to dismiss it as a so-called publicity stunt, then right. that may not be so effective, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's a very... Complicated question, of course, because I think, you know, with the Walmart actions, with the fast food actions, it is still very, very early to say what the outcome will be. But one of the things that is definitely happening right now is that we are seeing more discussion around the issue of low wages, more discussion around the issue of the minimum wage. And we're seeing action in, as we talked about, um, several cities and states across the country that are trying to raise the minimum wage. And now, you know, I think I may have said on this podcast before, and I still sort of believe it, that Walmart will go out of business before it will commit to paying a living wage to a lot of its workers, because I think that the idea of low wages is so deeply, intrinsically part of the company's, Culture, makeup, ideological makeup, but as we see the amount of people who are willing to come out and hold protests outside of Walmart, maybe that is what happens. Right. I mean, I, I don't know how many of the Black Friday
1: shoppers, as they tore through, uh, you know, the the, the looking tore through the floors looking for their Xboxes or whatever, they um, they're necessarily thinking about that. But the thing is, I mean. If you can just, it, you know, change the political climate in a way that raises the discussion, then that is a conversation worth having. That is a conversation worth starting, right? right. And if it takes a person's arrest, then they may very well believe that it, it's worth it, you know, for that, that one inconvenience, right? Um But, um, you know, that being said, while strikes were sort of a a rarity, um, you know, over the Thanksgiving holiday, we did see at least a couple of workers uh, doing a a, a small sort of strikes giving action um, at Whole Foods, which is um, an effort that's somewhat related to the Fight for 15 sort of low wage fast food workers mobilization that's going on, that's been going on for um, the the past uh, several months. Um, So the Workers Organizing Committee of Chicago, Uh, decided to sort of strategically stage a strike's giving that had a fairly limited demand, but one that may have pretty wide ramifications. Um, They they took the day of Thanksgiving, the issue of a Thanksgiving day off as kind of a pressure point for Whole Foods. Whole Foods, which sells a lot of the things that you might want to have at
0: your Thanksgiving dinner. Right,
1: and so their policy has generally been, um, you know, technically speaking, that um, they would remain open uh, on Thanksgiving in case you needed a last-minute, you know, pinch of Nutmeg, or you know, your frozen turkey had exploded, or something, and <laughs> you had some sort of Thanksgiving Day emergency. It's happened to all of us. Um, so they would remain open for the sake of the community, um, and uh, workers would be allowed to work on Thanksgiving if they wanted to, but no one would be obligated to work on Thanksgiving.
0: You'd be allowed,
1: to right? Work. So um, just like poor people are uh, allowed to sleep under bridges as much as they want. So um, the the idea here is that uh, the the workers felt that even though they were technically not obligated to um, work on Thanksgiving, there was overwhelming pressure from the company to do so. And what they wanted, essentially, was to um, sort of, you know, shutter the store, uh, uh, just sort of shut down work that day out of respect for the workers. Um, And so it became sort of um, a tension, uh, a dispute, I guess, and uh, they ended up, a handful of workers, um, uh, you know, uh, demanded, a shutdown, Um, Whole Foods Market then, uh, you know, sort of fired back, saying that Thanksgiving was always voluntary, the workers say no, but the threat of strikes giving a a basically ended with um, a clarification of the Whole Foods policy that uh, workers were absolutely under no obligation to work that day. So um, I guess you could say that they ended up sort of splitting the difference, but the workers still got to walk away with a bit of a triumph in that they could say that they effectively pressured the company to uh, clarify its policy and to make it clear to workers that they did have rights at work, right? Um, So, you know, that's, that's an incremental step forward. So that is one way in which a minority strike might be able to drive company policy um without necessarily shuttering an entire business um so um you know that being said uh, I, I thought uh, josh idelson uh, had a good quote
0: from Whole Foods josh Empire. idelson who's that guy yeah well <laughs> um the, 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 former the,
1: belabored co-host right, josh the, idelson the 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 the, uh, the man who's whose uh upstanding shoes i am i'm filling uh, matthew camp uh, a worker he interviewed at uh, with the um Workers Organizing Committee said, I think it will be disruptive, but that's kind of the point, to disrupt the flow of things. Um, and he said, causing a disruption also provides us with a platform, uh, you know, we have to make some noise to get our point across and that's the issue, right? It's, um, if you have a minority in absolute numbers, what you can do is, is make noise, right? Um, and, uh, that, that's what workers are, are learning to do, right? That is the one way that you can empower yourself in the face of such, you know, massive corporate dominion. And that's going to be the theme leading into this upcoming wave of low-wage worker mm-hmm. strikes that we're seeing with the, um, I believe the slogan is low low pay is not okay. Is that sort of the broad nationwide banner?
0: You know, I feel like the the fast food thing, one of the criticisms has been that, you know, we, we know that this is all sort of one campaign that is being, you know, largely structured and funded, at least by um, SEIU with partners in different cities with different groups. And yet that, there's been a sort of different name and different hashtag in every city. So I don't know if we've settled on one. But you I mean, need brand consistency, <laughs> <people. laughs> But low pay is not okay is certainly a very useful framing, right? Because it's not just fast food. It's everywhere, right? Low pay is, in fact, not okay for anybody. It's true, and it rhymes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. Um, yeah, so we're seeing this week they're saying that they're – Will be, and we are of course recording this ahead of time. So by the time you listen to this podcast on Friday, you will know if there have been strikes in one hundred different cities, um, f- in fast food restaurants, and other related low wage retail outlets.
1: And um, I think that the one of the things that they're hoping that workers will do is actually deliver. They actually have a handy little strike kit that you can download at their website, Um, but they actually include a letter in there that you're supposed to sort of hand your employer just to say, um, you know, this is to notify you that today we're going on strike to demand a $15 an hour wage for the right to join a union without intimidation and to protest interference with our protected workplace rights. Um, This is a lawful peaceful one day strike. We will return to work unconditionally for our next scheduled shift. So uh, they have sort of a program in mind that is designed kind of tactically to both protect workers from retaliation but also to make a concrete point. So, um, you know, is this the level of disruption that will actually create change? Who knows? I mean, if you build a critical mass, maybe it will happen, right? Um, But, you know, it's it's hard to say. I mean, um, uh, some people might not like the idea of having a strike where you actually promise your employer that you return at, you know, a designated time and date. Um, But, you know, I mean, this is, if you don't have a union, right, right, you kind of have to work within this framework so
0: yeah no it's it's very again you know we're talking about all sorts of tactics that are designed in part to draw attention to sort of draw out i guess courage um which seems like a terrible thing to say but it, it, it's this sort of demonstration that we saw very early with things like occupy right which that like once people sort of saw people getting arrested and realizing – or people got arrested and realized it was not the worst thing that could ever happen to them, they were more willing to take part in future direct actions that this sort of thing spread quickly.
1: Courage is contagious. Oh god.
0: Yeah I mean some of those things sound like terrible cliches but they are in fact sort of true right. If you see your colleagues go on strike and come back in and keep their job then you're more likely to go on strike. If you see your colleague go on strike and get his ass thrown out the door you are less likely to go on strike because you still need to pay the rent.
1: So we'll see what happens on December 15th and we'll report back after after that while we're on the topic of big brands, uh, right? Uh, we've gone from Amazon, we've hit Whole Foods, we've talked about fast food. So now we're and going Walmart. to hit, right? And now we're going to hit sort of the uh, the more upscale end of the low wage worker chain, uh, and so we're not that well, much more sashay into Starbucks, where you can get um, a latte uh, made for you by an underemployed PhD candidate um, for the for under two dollars. Um, Starbucks is has uh, I think uh, around the Thanksgiving holiday they kicked off a week long day. Of action. And uh, you may know this already, but the the Starbucks Workers Union, has, um, which is organized uh, in alignment with the Wobblies, the IWW, they have been trying to sort of penetrate the ranks of uh, Starbucks workers for a while now, um, with varying degrees of success. Uh, but um, slowly, they have been sort of building a following in different Starbucks outlets, uh, both inside and outside the United States. And now they're turning their organizing forces towards Uh, what we might call supply chain organizing. So they have partnered with um, the Food Chain Workers Alliance and um, other worker centers, labor advocates uh, in different sectors that are all part of the food industry. So they're basically, they call it uh, another slogan, solidarity from bean to cup. Uh, So the idea is to tackle the supply chain um, at every sort of uh, link in the chain uh, so that employers uh, cannot be in such a position where the industry is so integrated that they can sort of, um, you know, exploit a group of workers and on one end, and then um, have that uh, you know, and and then and then have workers at the other end of the chain not know about it. So um, just like you know, Walmart workers are trying to reach out to workers in Bangladesh. You have Starbucks workers who um, are trying now to reach out to workers who do things like make the packaging around Starbucks products. And uh, one of the campaigns they're doing is with um, a company called Pactive, and they are reaching out in solidarity with a group of unionized workers. At at a paper plant that creates uh, cups and um, you know other sort of paper products for Starbucks and other big food chains. So the idea here is to link up the cause of the Starbucks workers who are in the actual Starbucks stores with the workers who are actually making the supplies uh, that Starbucks uses for its products. One thing that is a benefit of this is that um, while Starbucks doesn't really have a, you know, widely unionized workforce, um, you have a union plant here that is holding its own against a Starbucks supplier. Um, And so far, uh, the pactive. Company is, um, is playing hardball in contract negotiations with um, the Paper workers Union, Local uh, 83, down in Stockton, California. And the Pactive plant workers are essentially fighting an effort by the company to cut back on benefits, cut back on pensions, and they're asking Pactive basically to just, you know, sort of preserve the contract terms that they currently have. But Pactive um, is being insistent on uh, driving down the cost of labor. They've been known to do this in other plants around the country. Currently, they apparently have about 55 facilities worldwide, employ a workforce of 12,000, and only nine of these are union shops, so unions are becoming a fast endangered species. So it's actually even more crucial that um, you have workers who are sort of working outside of the union apparatus reaching out to this sort of last bastion of unionization in the Starbucks chain and in the pact of empire. Meanwhile, the Starbucks workers are also reaching out to workers in Chile who are trying to organize a Starbucks union of their own there. And uh, they they have made some legal inroads. Um, so, uh, you know, back in 2008, the National Labor Relations Board judge ruled that Starbucks had unfairly retaliated against workers who were trying to organize um, with the IWW, and more recently in Chile... The company was actually sanctioned for violating union rights um, and was actually fined. So, you know, you do see some legal inroads here. And again, it's about building pressure and it's about creating disruptions. So if they can change either the workplace culture or they can sort of uh, uh, orchestrate some legal consequences for um, undermining workers' ability to organize, then uh, you might see a way for workers to find some leverage, even though they're still vastly outpowered by this huge corporation. Um, and uh, I managed to interview um, Greg Jones, who is a representative of Local 83 of the Association of Western Paper and Pulp Workers. So here's him talking about their struggle at their plant and what they hope to get by actually reaching out themselves to uh, the CEO of Starbucks and hoping that you know he can put pressure on Pactiv. So that's another way you could get um, some supply chain solidarity by getting the CEO of one company to put pressure on the CEO of another. It's just crazy enough to work.
2: Now I can tell you from day one, the position that Active took, her spokesperson took, she said, these are cuts that we have to have, and when it's all said and done, we're going to have them. If you guys want to go on a strike, whatever you want to do, do what you got to do, but in the end, we're going to have these things. So it's a year later now, we've been negotiating back and forth and trying to persuade them to not make these cuts, and they're standing on the ground. And, and so that's kind of what's led to us going out and trying to talk with some of the customers that they sell to, and not in any way, and I want to make it clear, that we're not in any way asking Schultz from Starbucks or any of the other McDonald's or any of the others to withdraw their business from Pactive. We need their business. If we don't have their business, we don't have our job. So, you know, we're not in any way asking anybody to withdraw their business. We're asking them to look into what's going on and and maybe encourage Pactive to you know, treat their workers fairly. And so, you know, I mean, we've reached out to different groups and organizations and unions and see that they also have issues with, you know, Starbucks, for instance. You know, there's people out there who have issues with Starbucks because of their wages and pay, and everybody's kind of come alongside us to try to help us. That's kind of where it's at.
1: So it sounds like you feel like the negotiations have reached a point where things need to escalate and that you need to go more public with some of your campaigning. Is this something that Union has done before or do you feel like the situation you're facing now is especially tense?
2: I think that we have maybe gone this way a little bit before, but not to this degree. You know, now we're reaching out to these other organizations and groups, but we've never done that before. I know that I was involved in the negotiations back in 2008 down in Southern California where the main customer at that time, the place I was working with was Costco. And we reached out to the CEO of Costco, Jim Senegal, and Jim Senegal did respond and call and want to know what was going on. And, and you know, somehow as a result of us reaching out to Costco, it appeared that it caused the company to get off of some of their concessions. So, you know, that's kind of the direction that we've tried to go here too, just trying to get other people involved to see what's going on because it's pretty unnecessary, it seems. There's no greed on our side of the table. We're basically fighting to keep what we have. We're not asking for anything that would point to any greed on our side of the table, right? I mean, we're just trying to keep what we got and not alter the lives of the families that are involved there. Because, I mean, if these people take what's on the table, it's really going to change how their families are their lives. Look, I mean, if they're wanting these cuts from the stocking workers, what are they doing with the money that they're getting from these cuts? Are they passing that on to Starbucks? Are they passing up savings on to McDonald's or the other people? I don't think so. I think it's going in the pockets of the higher-ups in the company. And it's just, there's a real inequality there. And, I mean, you look at the salaries these people are making. It's crazy. It's just crazy that people like Howard Schultz are making $20-something million a year and paying his people 9 bucks an hour, you know? <laughs>
1: And that was Greg Jones uh, of Local 83 of the Association of Western Paper and Pulp Workers um, talking about the actions of workers in the Starbucks supply chain. And I guess this leads back to this bigger question of we have a world of global brands that are selling to consumers at a massive rate and increasingly pauperizing the workers who are under them in all sectors. And so where does that leave... The average worker, right? Um, No union, right? Yeah. Increasingly low wages. um, Not even much real purchasing power, right? Um, Yeah. Because these things are, you know, pretty cheap as they come. So, you know, what do we do then? I have no answers. Sarah?
0: Nationalize them all. Yes. (laughs) That's my answer. Although it is, it's sort of, I was thinking as you were saying that of, um, Kate Lossie, who is a friend of the podcast, a contributor to to Dissent, who maybe we should have on to talk about working at Facebook um, as she is a former Facebook employee. But um, what she wrote about Mark Zuckerberg from Facebook saying, like, companies, not countries, that when we're talking about these global brands, they really are obviously bigger than any one country. And they've gotten sort of big enough that they can, you know, in many ways often bully National governments oh, into do, doing what they, they want. They can sue a national government for oh, yeah. regulating too much. Right? Well, That's we'll hard. have to talk about trade policy in another episode because um, we're going to run out of time here. But it really is when we talk about these supply chain solidarity movements and these sort of global solidarity actions that. We talked about a few episodes ago when uh, Peter Frey's co-hosted with me that it really is going to take a sort of international labor movement to actually tame these international monster brands.
1: Right. And, in fact, that that's kind of the Wobbly's um, ethos, isn't it? So it's, it it it's always It's industrial has workers been. of the world. It so. always has been. They have been sort of a supranational uh, worker organization, so yes. if they could just get some with, numbers. Under right, right. exactly.
0: The ethos is there, and I think a lot of people are realizing it not just wobbly is the structures are hopefully being built right and and the
1: idea that you know while you are organizing on a global level even something that is uh you know a strike at a single outlet yeah yeah that
0: we're really right that these are all parts of a global workers movement And on that cheery note, um, we're trying to be cheerful here. I think it's time for uh, ARG. Yes. I wish I'd written that. That's so a
1: cheery ARG.
0: That is a, a very cheery ARG. Can you feel the cheer? Yes. Michelle, what arg. what cheered you up with your? I guess envy is not terribly cheerful, but you know, what um, do you wish you'd written this week?
1: Right. Uh, so, <laughs> unfortunately, this isn't terribly cheery, but um, I, uh, I actually saw um, an interesting commentary uh, coming from. The UK. Uh, It's from the New Left Project, and it's titled The War on Welfare, From Social Security to Social Insecurity. And I thought this was sort of interesting to touch on in light of the gimmick with Amazon using drones in their delivery services and sort of this idea of how military uh, language and culture kind of gets conflated with our popular culture and Mm -hmm. and the way we talk about um, society and the way we talk about the social obligations of the state. Yeah. and um this commentary you know started out with sort of an interesting and, and it seems a bit far flung at first but then they actually do a pretty Um, good job of linking these two uh, seemingly disparate lines of rhetoric. And one is about um, social securities and the security of economy, economic stability, um, the security of the welfare state, right? Um, The security of people's livelihoods. That is sort of an old concept in some ways. Um, You know, uh, the idea of the modern welfare state um, kind of crystallizing in the early 20th century, and now, of course, quickly being dismantled. And um, this idea of social insecurity, which is, of course, bound up in notions of national security, public safety, you know, defense, right? And um, I think the invocation of the term war here is actually pretty interesting. So they yeah. called a war on welfare. Um, you see this invoked from time to time with things like the war on drugs, the war on poverty, the war on terror, right? right. Um, and they start with um, the war on welfare campaign. I can't believe they actually called it that, run by Rupert Murdoch's The Sun right. uh, and in twenty. They actually quote here a sort of proclamation by the Sun. Uh, it says, Today the Sun is declaring war on feckless benefits claimants to slash the five billion pounds wasted in Britain's shambolic handouts culture. Ah, uh, you got to love those Brits on a tabloid. You would actually find the words shambolic and feckless in one sentence. Yes. But anyway, so what Rupert Murdoch is essentially saying here is that um, you know, society needs to declare war on the enemy, and the enemy is actually the state, right? It's no longer the en- an enemy of the state, right? Uh, They're now advancing this idea of a society being embodied um, in a group of private citizens who hate the idea of their hard-earned wealth being taken from them by this faceless, scary government entity in the form of the tax man and then being redistributed to um, people who would simply waste the state's funds,
0: right? Sounds like Ronald Reagan's The Government is the Problem. Yes, yes. And again it goes back to the
1: Star of the Beast thing, right? Right. I mean, if you don't, if you are hell-bent on Proving that government cannot do anything productive, then you will eventually uh, create a government that is wholly unproductive and fulfills that prophecy, right? Yep. You know, uh, traditionally we see a demonization of the poor in sort of subtle sort of scapegoating messages such as the welfare queen, right etc the idea of this profligate state, these lazy civil servants who are just living off the teat of the federal government. Right. All um, of these
0: metaphors are so gendered. I yeah, wonder.
1: Yeah, yeah, suckling at the teat of the federal government. So, you know, that that is one line, uh but increasingly you see the language sort of militarized in a way that is essentially pretty combative and hostile and even Kind of violent. I mean, if you look at a Tea Party rally and and other things like this, you you do get a sense that you have people sort of anger sort of rising to a boiling point here, and you have politicians who are strategically using the unrest of people um, and kind of whipping them into this frothy, rabid, sort of seething hatred for Mm -hmm. this unnamed other. And in many cases, uh, the other is um, the tag that's applied to people who basically need help, right? And often it is used as a way to divide the poor, right? Right. To divide the deserving from the undeserving poor. And the poor become the enemy. And you see it bound up in this language of security, right? So you have the idea of security moving away from this idea of social security, which is a collective kind of security for society as a whole, and moving towards an increasingly militarized language of national security, Mm -hmm. um, where you have um, the establishment of, say, the Office of Homeland Security in the United States. You have the British Ministry of Home Security. Yeah. Um, you have these sort of tropes in our popular culture that are making us feel as if we are constantly under siege, right? And yeah. we are in a constant state of anxiety. and We don't know what the root cause of it is. We only know that somehow we're living under constant threat, right? And by getting people to misinterpret their own anxiety and see the poor as the enemy, even though they themselves may actually be poor, right? Um, you were actually you know, turning working class people against themselves. Right? Yeah. So um, that is the way the media kind of manipulates us into thinking that we are our own worst enemy in some ways. And I yeah. thought that is really interesting cultural commentary and the way language intersects with the way we look at ourselves with respect to the welfare state and the way we distance ourselves from the state, even though we slowly see the state encroaching on our own lives uh, in, in mm-hmm. very sort of menacing ways um, such as, you know, the increase. And intrusion of the state in our everyday lives, through spying, through violations of our privacy. You know, we don't think of that as big government. What we see as big government is, oh, you yeah. know, too high taxes, right? Yeah. Get your hands off my property taxes, that yeah. sort of thing. Which,
0: right. Along the same lines, actually, I, I feel like I'm cheating a little bit. The piece that I'm I'm using is from October. Um, it is Robert Cutner at the American Prospect with a very long piece titled "The Task Rabbit Economy." And uh, Michelle has reported on Task Rabbit in the past. It's a sort of horrifying website in which you can bid for the right to perform menial jobs of all sorts for other people. And he uses this as a sort of metaphor for our entire economy now, where instead of Workers having bargaining power to bargain up their wages, workers are instead bargaining against each other to drive down wages. And that's... Putting yourself in the auctioning block. Exactly, yeah. And it's it's a really... I mean taskrabbit itself is is horrifying some of these other things like mechanical turk are also horrifying which is an amazon joint to give you an example of a TaskRabbit task is someone might put out a call to that uh, you know oh um i dropped
1: my keys in a subway gutter um so uh, you know who can who can fetch them from the gutter for me right. uh, at, at the lowest bid exactly right? Yeah. so,
0: so right. right and if um, that's
1: how you want to spend your afternoon um instead of looking for work that never materializes you know right. that the, right you're and a free it's agent. it's
0: Right, and it's, you know, it's sold once again as these free agents who are just doing these things because they don't want to have a real job and they like the freedom, 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 and that's not really true at all. Um, The freedom that we get is never freedom from want and hunger and insecurity. The freedom we get is the freedom to bid your wages ever lower in pursuit of ever crappier jobs. The piece goes on to do many other things, one of which is to really explain what a working welfare state could look like and particularly what a welfare state for the 21st century could look like, right? The, the idea that, you're going, that we're going to return to the welfare state of the interwar period in this country is dead and gone. That does not work for the computer age, nor should it, but that we don't have to have insecure people in order to have a flexible economy. Right. So as long as you protect workers from jobs that might be better done by a robot, easier done or cheaper done by a robot, even if, you know, we want to deliver mail by drone someday. The point is not that we never have technological advancement. The point is that we insulate workers from this. Um, I'm going to quote the article for you. He writes, there's nothing inherently good about a job assembling cars, pumping gas, or serving fast food. Society's goal over time should be to replace low-end jobs with machinery and move people into better jobs. Hence, the need for full employment is the cushion, as well as other policies to mandate good wages. The Nobel laureate, I believe it's Vasily Leontief, although I am probably pronouncing that wrong, quote continuing, <laughs> liked to tell a parable in which the economy becomes so productive that there is only one production worker left and her job is to flip the switch. At that point, the pressing economic questions become distributive. Where does all that wealth go, and what does everyone do for a living? The benefits of the automation can go to the factory owners who become fabulously rich, sort of like the society we currently live in, end my editorial comment, or the wealth can be spread around in the form of well-paid service jobs and leisure time. So... In terms of a welfare state for the future, I like that idea very much, where we all perhaps work less, and uh, a subject that we've returned to many times on this podcast, and that we will probably return to again, as long as there are going to be bosses who want to replace postal workers with drones, and fast food workers who are threatened with robots flipping burgers for them if they demand wages that are higher than seven twenty-five an hour. Right. But in any case, we will come back next week and we will solve that problem for you. Yes, yes. (laughs) Just keep
1: on tuning in and we'll eventually solve the problem of of capitalism. But, I mean, really, I think the the idea here is that, I mean, people need to start questioning what is it about modern life that makes us measure our value only in economic terms, right? Right. I mean, I think what Kuttner is saying here is that we need to start thinking about ourselves outside of being economic citizens, right? right? We need to start thinking about ourselves as whole human beings.
0: We need an economy that serves people. People, not people that serve an economy. Right.
1: I mean, a job used to be a means to a livelihood. It didn't used to mean all your life. So, I mean, just just think about that, people. As you enjoy the holidays, please give yourself a little time off.
0: And we will be back next week. There will no doubt be more news. Um, if you take part in a strike this week, let us know. Tweet at us at hashtag Belabored. If you are in danger of losing your pension this week, um, please let us know. We would love to talk to you. And if you, as always, have tips, ideas, comments, thoughts, things you'd like to explain, solutions to global capitalism, uh, let us know on Twitter, and uh, we'll be back next week.